And then Robin Roberts, if that's her name, uh, let's call her that. We'll say, we'll say it's Robin Williams. <laughs> it's, it's Robin Williams. Okay. Uh, Will Roberts, <laughs> the Duck Dynasty guy. <laughs> Three Dogs North is an attempt to objectify the subjective with little violence as possible. The following has been torn from its origins in space and time and put entirely at your disposal. Well, you know, I, I actually had a prayer today. It was during my holy hour. I was just trying to think about, um, in my class teaching Theology of the Body, a lot of what JP2 explains is in order for you to date properly or you to court someone of the opposite sex um, in that pursuit of marriage, you have to first have an understanding that you love them purely as brother or sister. Mm-hmm. And it's just kind of that, um, that, that pure love that he talks about that would obviously be equated with like me loving my biological sister. How do I love another person, like another, even attractive female, as my biological sister. Like, how can I transform the way that I look at them so that it is, all of my encounters are with that pure, I don't know what you call it, the pure lens that you would look at your your very own sister with. Mm -hmm. So like, how can Pope Francis see all of these people and he's trained his heart such, or purified his heart such that every person that he sees, he literally loves them as a brother and sister, like how, how much the gospel impacts the very eyes that he sees the world with. Mm-hmm. He's had some radical encounters with some people that, you know, are traditionally not in line with church teaching, and he still loves the heck out of them. Mm-hmm. Like, how do you do that, you know? How do you shape your heart in the way that anyone that you meet, you have to look at them purely? Well, that's a good point, too, because you think... Because that's tough. If it were your biological brother or sister that had made some kind of lifestyle choice that you were, you know, you and the rest of the family thought was just not good for them, <clears throat> but they were insistent and this is what makes me happy and this group of people accepts me and you people don't. Um, and unfortunately there are some families that do just kind of reject, you know, people that come out That's and say, a good point. Yeah. Know, uh, I'm gay or whatever lifestyle choice they've chosen that they, even a religious conversion, sometimes families will just kind of cast people out. Mm-hmm. Um, but if what crisis is saying is really true, that uh, we are all one family, that we're all brothers and sisters, then um, that just doesn't fly because you're not, you don't disinvite your family from dinner because of some choice they've made. That's just not how families work. Mm-hmm. Um, you, it's like the, uh, the prodigal father, you know, in the parable that runs out to meet the kid even before he's proven that he's repentant or anything. I mean, this, this whole withholding mercy until you're, you're sorry enough, until you recognize that we were right all along and you screwed up, is not at all how God worked salvation in the world. So for us to sit in the church and say, you know, whenever you're ready, you know, to turn back and admit that you've been wrong this whole time, then you can receive forgiveness and maybe we'll will accept you, but too bad you have like a bunch of piercings and tattoos, so we'll always kind of treat you like an outcast anyway. That attitude just will not fly anymore. And you have the great example even in that story of the brother 
the other brother who sits mm-hmm. there and he sort of emulates that other perspective of it where it's like uh you know oh i guess he's back and i guess he's my brother but i'm gonna have a pity party out mm-hmm. here you know like i've always look done, at me i've always done the right thing right here this person's getting forgiven which is so tough because like and even the, the father's even merciful to him too he comes yeah. out to him and he says look come into the party i want everybody in here yeah not just the people that are good enough or it's not a reward for good behavior I mean, you see, it has to come with that humility because even the brother who was who was right in his actions, he was always there for the father, and he did always do what he wanted, and he never asked for these extra things, and he always did the the right thing, so to speak. So, I mean, in terms of the world, how the world views it, he did have rights to some of those things that his brother probably shouldn't have had, mm-hmm. but he still wasn't right in terms of the gospel, in terms of Christ, you know, it, so that death to self, it's so tough. It's like, mm-hmm. I've been doing the right thing this whole time, you know, mm-hmm. but that's, you know, that's where it comes in where, Hey, are you going to earn your salvation? Is this you doing all of this awesome stuff? Well, it's humility. Oaks of blessed memory gave a homily in my first year here that was, that stuck in my mind. And it was, I don't know if it was this parable or one of the many others where Jesus makes this exact point. But he said, uh, heaven, um, if you think heaven is only um, good enough for you if other people can't have it, then you're not ready to go to heaven yet. Hmm. Um, which I thought was a really pithy way of saying that. But, and it's kind of a words on lips sort of thing. Like no one would ever say that mm-hmm. themselves, but th- he's putting those words on your lips and it's addressing an attitude that a lot of us do have. Like, well, if I'm going to give up sex uh, to be a priest and I'm going to give up all this stuff that, I, you know, sometimes I feel like doing because I know that it's not uh, a Christian way of life, then at least, like, I should be able to get a better house in heaven yeah. than these sinners. Yeah. yeah. Which is such an ugly, jealous attitude, but it is. we all have that deep down somewhere. Yeah. Um, that and that's the, if Jesus doesn't have time for anybody it's those people <laughs> it's religious people who think they're better than other people yeah. he's got all the time in the world for prostitutes tax collectors deaf and blind beggars he has all the time in the world for them you know what's interesting is I just remember at conferences and talks over the past few years um, a lot of times when a group will ask someone to give a testimony, it's someone with this like prodigal son story, just mm-hmm. like a radical, like I was addicted to drugs or I was, you know, just falling off the deep end and all of a sudden I had this experience of God's love and grace and like I came back and it's just this beautiful thing. And uh, it's funny because I was at a conference one time, I don't remember where it was, but this kid was talking about, and he was like, and he was commenting on this, is how all, like, the testimonies always are, are that. And his point was just like, well, you know, I've, yeah, haven't done too much wrong, got into <laughs> every college I applied to, you know. And so it's... Um, <clears throat> One time I lied about breaking a fishing pole. Exactly, exactly. <gasps> <laughs> 
And you? Get out! Even you are in the church? Ugh. Um, anybody in. Yeah. So you still have... I don't know. It's really cool. It's just to think that, like... You're right. I mean, Jesus loves just... I think in a very particular way, these people with this prodigal son story. But just to keep, like, that notion as well is that, like... Yeah, if, if you have a story that's, like, just pretty straight-laced and you did what you need to do and everything as long as that attitude that you weren't that you were just talking about as long as that doesn't creep in mm-hmm. i would agree like that that attitude is just such an incredible hindrance um to people but i just remember that specifically of that kid being like well i've just kind of been doing my thing you know mm-hmm. here and he, and he still like has this just really profound uh relationship with christ and and certainly like an experience of his own sinfulness. It's not that he didn't feel feel sinful, but we just can't always, I don't know, like search out those prodigal sons type types. Yeah, no, anyway. that's that's so true. Mm-hmm. There was a weird dynamic. I don't know if you guys experienced this when you first, because we've all kind of had some kind of reversion, right? Mm-hmm. I think, um, meaning that we're cradle Catholics, but like at some point in our lives, faith actually started to mean something to us. Yep. And, so our behavior changed, and um, I just remember an attitude I had that sort of naturally I ended up growing out of, but for a while I thought, I just had a lot less tolerance for people who, um, who didn't get it, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, I, w- I was going to confession, I was going to um, daily mass most days, yeah. and leading a Bible study and stuff, and... So I was doing the hard Christian thing, and now I could, I I had a certain amount of moral authority or right to expect that from other people. Mm-hmm. And so if you're not living up to this standard, then I am going to be a jerk to you mm-hmm. and make it very clear to you that I'm judging you and I know exactly what you're doing wrong and that you're bad for doing that. Right. You are and, less and, than me. And people, mm-hmm. I remember certain people like family and friends that were just like, man, Getting into your faith made you a huge jerk. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and it took me a while to get out of that, but mm-hmm. I read something in the Office of Readings at one point. I can never remember where it is, but it was Augustine saying that, you know, that initial zeal um, that can kind of manifest itself as judgmental mm-hmm. attitudes um, is not good, but it's a, sometimes a necessary step on the way. Hmm. Um, and so it shouldn't, it shouldn't be, like, if you're a spiritual director, I think it was advice for spiritual directors, don't, like, beat the guy up about it because it's the normal zeal of a young convert. Like, you're a baby in the faith. Mm-hmm. You're, you don't have it all figured out. You can't handle people with different worldviews because you just figured out that this one's right. And so when it's fresh, you're very defensive. And you think, like, man, if you, if you, <laughs> you are wrong and I have to tell you now, because if I don't tell you, you might not know. Where's my catechism? Give <laughs> me that thing. And you you also see that a lot in, in argumentative attitudes, that's really see, defensive attitudes. That was more my, in my personal experience, is that, like, once I got equipped with, like, uh-huh. very basic apologetics, I thought I was going to convert the world, yeah, man. Yeah. Like, oh, how can make you make sense? Yeah. How can you not get this, you stupid idiot? Yeah. You know? Totally. <laughs> yeah. I was actually reading a line Chesterton has. He's trying to explain Christianity. And he said, uh, 
you know, sometimes it's it's really, really easy for people to understand uh, something when they don't totally believe in it, when they don't, they don't totally, uh, it's not their complete worldview. Because if you have one thing that can prove it, it's very easy to explain that. He said, but when you completely understand or when you completely believe something, that means everything proves the existence of this one thing. Mm -hmm. And so he was like, he gave the example of, uh, well, why is civility better than, uh, you know, barbarism, just total chaos? And he was like, you know, what do you, what do you, you said, well, there's a piano there. That's, pianos are good and there's the light and light is good. You know, it's like everything points to this fact occurring. Mm -hmm. So when you have that initial conversion of like, Christianity is for real. Christ actually came and died and rose from the dead. Not one thing that makes sense or like, oh, materialist, I can point to, you know, the scientific method that proves, you know, materialism is the, the only philosophy that makes sense or whatever. No, everything, every single thing that I look at proves the existence of Christianity. That and God that's in us. my head, right? Mm -hmm. That in, in God has, is loving every single thing that is being right now. Every single thing that is, God is loving it into existence. And therefore, this whole world is just, you know, a manifestation of God's love. Mm -hmm. How can you not see that? It's like when, you, when that initially lights in your heart. It's, I mean, it's everything. It's everything. So when you are trying to explain that to a person who doesn't get one thing, it's mm -hmm. like, <laughs> I want to... Okay, can we open up? Let's go. You know, just ram it in yeah. because it so completely makes sense mm -hmm. uh, in our minds. Um, yeah, it takes a few years of realizing that you don't make converts by arguing with them. It does. It it does take a few years. I would agree, but it, that's so true. It should be immediately apparent because I was not converted by arguments. I was converted by beauty. Yeah. That. I saw that this was a more beautiful way to live because I, I saw other people living this way and I said, I want that. But I think my experience, I, I had that same thing um, through a few guys that were a little bit older than me specifically that it was just like, I want to be a, a man like that, you know, as I mature in my faith. And um, But uh, I think, at least in my thinking at the time, you like you want that really bad, you know. You want to be like one of those guys that's just is rocking the faith, like just living an authentically beautiful, holy life. And so, all of a sudden, you get these answers that like click with you, mm -hmm. and it's like, this is how I do it. Like mm -hmm. I'll look super smart, I'll convert people, and like this is how I'm gonna look awesome. Right. You end up looking <laughs> that's like so a, true. you end up looking like a jerk. Yeah. And probably not helping that many people. Uh -huh. But, like, I honestly think, at least that was what, like, I, not that I it's like the articulated It's like the, the particle time. board version of the awesome guy. Yeah, exactly. You're just like, I'm just going to real quick put up this little shack. Yep. <laughs> and it'll be just like your mansion that you built with years and, like, skill and hard work. It's right. so true. It's so true. We, we talk about uh, God's love for us and how Pope Francis can kind of... Uh, how he loves everybody just immediately when, when he sees them. He just has this passionate love for for all peoples. And that, uh, you know, he doesn't feel better. He doesn't feel more righteous than than everyone else. Mm -hmm. You know, that's as a matter of fact, that's why he can love. Because you're not other. We're family. We're brothers and sisters. That's why. He's not looking at the material differences between you and me. Or mm -hmm. even spiritual differences between you and I. Because there's a more transcendental truth 
that connects us together. And I think that that is absolutely crucial, especially when we talk about um, the righteous you know, Christian or the righteous religious person who feels justified in all their actions and all their deeds and everything. Uh, it is sort of just looking at that like total base superficial, you know, like, hey, I'm doing, I'm doing the, these things. And we talk about Christ's love for the poor. Uh, he loves them so much and for the prostitute and the sinner and everything because they know how much they need mm-hmm. somebody else, how much they need God and they need other people, how much they need brothers and sisters and they need family. The poor, they're very aware of that. Mm-hmm. I need your help, man. That's what their job is. Their job is asking for help. You know, so that's, and, and again, it's to get to your point that uh, doing good things is obviously not what we're saying is bad or living a sin-free life is not bad. Doing God's will and following the law from the gospel today is not bad, but it always has to come with the dependence that, or the understanding that we are completely dependent on God. Mm-hmm. And as soon as our actions start making us feel like, oh, I'm totally good here. Mm-hmm. God, step back. You can, I, take, uh, you can take a break for a sec because I'm totally good. Yeah. I got this under control. Well, Father Hennessy today, God, let me give you some advice yeah. here. Yeah. Let me give you some advice. I read uh, two chapters of a Scott Hahn book last night, God, so <laughs> I'll take care of this. Yeah. I pretty much know everything that's going on in the Mass right now. I read the Lamb's Supper, so let me tell you a thing or two. <laughs> But that's, when you think about it, that's the poor's job, is to ask for help. And like, I guess I think about it in my own prayer, how often I need to ask for help. Mm-hmm. You know, being in seminary and trying to live that sin-free life and that reversion. It's like, okay, you know, I know the right thing to do, but, and I'm going to try and do it. And, uh, but it always has to come down to God's grace. And the second you lose sight of that, the second you lose sight of that, you're some raging Catholic who's just... <laughs> out of control <laughs> finger well, think, about, yeah, think yeah. about this too in terms of that connection between being poor materially and being poor spiritually that the posture of prayer is kneeling with your hands folded yeah and if you ever saw someone come up to you kneeling with their hands folded what do you think they want help right they're coming asking you for something mm-hmm. but we we do that whenever we pray that's the normal prayer posture and it's not because we're contemplating high ideas or anything it's the posture of a beggar that we're all beggars Um, that's why uh, Matthew says blessed are the poor in spirit that's how he reports the Sermon on the Mount or whereas Luke said blessed are you poor Um, it's not like Matthew was saying well I'm not as into the poor as Luke is so I'm going to make it more like kind of figuratively poor, you know. The two are both, you know, true. That right. The poor are blessed because theirs <laughs> is the kingdom of God, that God has this special love for them and, and that they're more disposed to receive the gifts of God because they want them, you know. The rich, materially rich, often don't want what God's giving away. And so they are, in a way, cursed by their riches if they can't get past them mm-hmm. uh, as a way to be comfortable uh, and you know, satisfied. Right. But blessed are the poor in spirit is that's a whole other reality uh, and level that you're talking about. To, to realize that um, I am poor because, like you said, Mike, that right now God is currently creating me. He didn't just like form me out of clay, put me in a kiln, and then leave me on the shelf 
and he's off in the other room now. He's right now creating me. And so without him continuing to love me into being, like the same way a singer sings a song, if they stop singing that note, that note no longer exists. We're like that. Part of God's song, his story. Uh, I have no ability to, I mean, aside from the material fact that, like, if lightning struck this room right now and killed me, there's nothing I could do about it. But even on an ontological, philosophical level, if God doesn't want me to exist after this moment, after this sentence, even right now, then I won't. So I am a beggar in that way. Now, I trust God. I trust that he loves me because of what he's done for me. And so he's not going to just, like, willy-nilly annihilate me. But he could, is the point. Yeah, that's what the Old Testament, everybody's so afraid of going on that mountain to see God's face because God is scary, if you think about it. Like, the, the difference between the little power that we have with our little swords that we carve and money that we print and, like, the things that we think are so powerful... And then you got God, who's just everywhere, all powerful, all knowing. Existence. His existence itself. Yeah. Uh, we are beggars, man, and so we kneel, we fold our hands, and we're poor, just like the poor. Three dogs north are Juice, Seabisk, and Michael Metz. Conversations have been edited to sound smarter. Audio and transcripts of this episode are exclusive property of Mundelein Seminary and may not be rebroadcast without the express written consent of Major League Baseball.